chapter 7, The Word of God, in which the author explores something a bit scary. What is the Bible exactly? The Bible's quite a thing. I believe it's undeniable that it is at least claimed to be central in various ways to most Christian groups. Some take it to be a very literal thing they claim they collectively understand pretty much entirely. Others think a lot of it is pretty mysterious or artistic and expressive. Others take it as purely inspirational. Nowadays, it's getting surprisingly hard to find Christians who've ever read the whole thing, Bible school students and pastors included. Years ago, I blogged this about the Bible. The Bemicturated Translation I was raised to read the Bible every day. I was supposed to read a chapter each morning from quite a young age, and for the most part, I did. I was paid $20 when I was 12 to read the Bible cover to cover. One thing to know, it had to be the 18th century King James Bible, and not a modern translation, as those were thought to not be the real Bible. They were considered mere paraphrases, translations by people without the proper respect for and knowledge of the book. So I read it, with every begat, every thee and thou and hast, and though I was reading quickly, more so I could say I'd done it than for the $20, though I wanted $20 too, for the most part I understood what the words meant. I say, I understood what the words meant, in the same way that nowadays I can claim to know what the words in the Bible say. Very different from knowing what the author intended by saying this, what to do now, or stuff like that. This reminds me of how Bill always used to complain about, object to, and otherwise comment upon things in the Bible. Something was very odd about this. Every single time he referenced something in the Bible, he'd predictably be talking about something that wasn't in the Bible at all. Three wise men and their names. God helps them that helps themselves. Neither a borrower nor a lender be. People in heaven wearing white robes and playing hearts and singing. A choir of angels singing at Christ's birth. People becoming angels after they died. Purgatory. St. Peter working as a greeter at the gates of heaven. Heaven having gates, the, the gates of heaven being pearly rather than those of the New Jerusalem. Jonah being swallowed specifically by a whale, Adam eating an apple, Adam's first wife Lilith, and so on and on and on. Bill would always insist all that stuff was in there somewhere, though he hadn't read the Bible, and he'd want to comment on it or object to it just as if it was. And he wouldn't believe me when I said it wasn't. It didn't matter what I said was really in there. Because, he reasoned, all those cartoons, movies, and church guys couldn't possibly be talking about stuff that wasn't even in there, now could they? He'd seen The Exorcist, The Omen, and The Prophecy, also God, the Devil, and Bob. No fooling him. Hearing one of our stupid arguments, Dave said to Bill, Look, the Bible is a book. You can read books. Mike read it. He knows what's in there and what isn't. First point. It's a book with a finite number of words in it. It's not really open to interpretation what's in there and what isn't. Yet on the internet, as recently as last week, when I mentioned the fact that the Bible was a book on a brethren's site, it took less than five minutes before someone leaped in to object to this massive display of irreverence. The Bible was not a book. It is the divinely inspired word of God the poster needed me to admit immediately. But Dave's second point... 
about me simply knowing what's in there and what isn't? Very different from me knowing what's meant by everything, knowing how to make sense of or how to benefit from anything. Bill actually tried to fight that one by saying, well, there are an unlimited number of ways to interpret, but Dave pointed out that this wasn't about interpretation. It was about nothing any vaguer and more open to interpretation than is it mentioned in any way or not. The Bible is not ungoogleable. It's not unknown to Wikipedia. The specific attitude with which I was to read the Bible as a child was one of those things that wasn't quite stated explicitly by anyone, but the message was sent, and I picked it up loud and clear. The Bible had all the answers to life. Lots of preachers said this over and over. Conveyed quite clearly was the belief that the Bible was to be read so you'd know what to do and what not to do. In other words, you were to read the Bible as if it were an instruction manual, set of rules, or how-to book, for getting blessing from God, for being a proper Christian, for knowing what was right. Everything was either right or wrong, absolutely everything. But the Bible itself says the Christian life isn't about rules and laws so much, and we change a lot of its language to say right or wrong when it's saying something far more nuanced. Maybe something not about obeying rules at all. Many places in the Bible, the word translated commandments would more correctly be translated teaching. When all that was pointed out growing up, people just changed what they called their rules. Rules became sensible guidelines from which it is very, very important for us free Christians never to deviate, otherwise it's very dangerous and God can't bless us. That way, we got to have rules anyway. We found them terribly reassuring. And the idea, even if found in scripture, of us being free from the obligation to prove our worth to God by following rules? Terrifying. A whole lot of people are into religion for the limits it provides them. They want to be locked away by it. Some institutions of higher learning, I found out, taught that the Bible is not merely rules and lifestyle constraints, but classic literature, that it is beautiful creative and nuanced, a unique example of something with emotional and life content shared across the ages by people long dead. Thing is, another idea was also wordlessly conveyed to me by my spiritual keepers, that to elevate the Bible from how-to manual to piece of world literature would somehow debase it, would be disrespectful. The book wasn't meant to be treated like literature, and certainly did not contain stories, phrases, and messages that might well touch the hearts of anyone who read them, even if they didn't believe the stories really happened. It was really important that the stories had all really happened, precisely how we modern folk imagined them happening after reading the edited translation. Vital that we remembered that they'd all been written to teach us the importance of going out to meeting and doing what we were told there. But the Bible gets taught in literature courses, as literature. I was told that in such a literature course, they'd only cast doubt on those awkward beliefs we insisted upon, like that Isaiah wrote the entire book of Isaiah all by himself, and that at the end where it tells us that he died, he must have foreseen this and wrote it through divine inspiration in advance. No one wanted to say, oh, Steve wrote that last bit because that would bring down the whole house of cards somehow. Same thing with Moses. Wrote a bunch of books, including the parts that happened before man was created, and what happened in heaven when no men were present, and what happened after he died. 
At university, it upset me quite a bit to have some of these latter things pointed out to me and to really think about them, because I hadn't before, and neither had anyone I knew. I had to really face the fact that I'd been trained to unthinkingly, almost instinctively, protect my beliefs from common sense. I have hundreds of cherished books of fiction, and also a huge collection of autobiographies. I have books that I have often used to divert my mind into worlds of wonder when my life was gray and empty. I have books that made me laugh out loud with delight at their unconventional and ruggedly individualistic cleverness. I have books which are just really good examples of something or other. My life bears the imprint of these works, and my walls are thickened and edified by their sentry-like presence in every place I have ever lived. I also have some how-to books. I have one on the art of sensual massage, and a few about photography. I have ones about how to play the guitar. I have one which promises to teach me to read New Testament Greek in just 20 minutes a day. It's blue. I have some about how to use computers, which have now been obsolete for 20 or 30 years. The thing is, I haven't ever finished reading any of the how-to ones. I don't dig into them the way I tear through the fiction. These expensive, colorfully illustrated books were bought with the best of intentions, filling me with the enticing notion that by reading this book, I was going to become a well-rounded, skilled, interesting person. No doubt one who could be performing a sensual massage on a Greek woman I'd been photographing with the strains of my new classical guitar CD, filling the air, playing from my TRS-80 64K Radio Shack color computer. Despite the best of intentions, to a volume, these books have sat upon my shelf, pouting, brooding, textually unfulfilled for decades. Now, to this day, which shelf category is my upbringing going to predispose me to put my Bibles into? That's easy. How-to books, non-literature. Reading them is supposed to make me a more well-rounded, skilled, interesting, spiritual, peaceful, happy, enlightened person, just like all of the ones I plan to read with the best of intentions not in there with the fiction, in with the how-to books that inevitably get buried under murder mysteries, westerns, fantasy, science fiction, and short story compilations. But the Bible is not like my how-to books. It's not like any book of rules or instructions that I've ever seen. You can open it at random and put your finger on the page, and chances are you are quite unlikely to be pointing at anything it would even be possible to obey. I will now try that ten times in a row just to prove my point. We will see how many of these random scriptural finger-pokings one would be able to obey this afternoon. But I am poor and needy. He that remaineth in the city shall die by the sword. Nevertheless, they shall be his servants. A certain damsel with a spirit of divination met us. The brother of Micah was Ishiah. And thou shalt say to Jehoiakim, king of Judah, you can't say that to him because he's dead, the mountains shall bring peace to the people. cloud and smoke by day, and the shining of a flaming fire by night. The latter end is worse with them than the beginning. The spotted cattle shall be your wages. Obey those, I dare you. 
As I've mentioned, Dallas Willard points out that people take things like the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, and try to make rules of it all. They take various statements which basically say, poor, oppressed, persecuted, spiritually clueless, good news, you get all these cool things from God anyway. But then they say solemnly to rooms full of people. So the Bible is asking us to become poor and oppressed and persecuted and unwise in spirit. Let us obey God's word, friends. Get out there and do what it takes to get some persecution. Become less rich in spiritual things. Be childless. Have no money. Otherwise, we will not qualify for blessing. It's all laid out here in the word of God. That's pretty dumb. Misses the message. Not everything is a command. A whole lot is an offer, a promise, a gift. In a similar way, the Bible often gives inspiring and detailed descriptions of what the love of God, the Holy Spirit, maturity, and divine love acting in us are like. Because that's what a description is, what something is or would be like. And again, we're dumb. We decide that the Bible is telling us all this because we are being ordered to counterfeit the love of God, the Holy Spirit, maturity, divine love, whatever, to fake it, to make vows, to do that stuff ourselves using willpower, resolve, duty, and obedience, so we can then feel okay before God. We make rules and doctrine to try to imitate what we think we've seen in people we thought or who claim to be spiritual. I do not joke when I report that some of the more legalistic brethren groups quote Psalm 147 and verse 10, He delighteth not in the strength of the horse, he taketh not pleasure in the legs of a man, and sternly make a rule that no members may ride horses and men may not wear shorts. Women already can't wear shorts nor pants, these being men's apparel, because otherwise God won't take pleasure in you. He taketh not pleasure in the legs of a man, nor delighteth in the strength of a horse, after all. Some brethren groups have these rules, and they enforce them. I'm not joking. That's just true. And it's embarrassing. These people claim to be the only ones reading God's word aright. And this is carnal thinking, fleshly. It's like someone who, after seeing a commercial for a new iPhone with all of its available colors and features, decides, Apple is telling me to go into the basement and design and construct an electronic device that is just like that one. I don't know much about electronics, and I don't have a lot of money, but I guess I better get working on it. Apple says so. In fact, Apple is trying to get you to want what they have to offer, a thing that already exists made for you. And all through the Bible, over and over, the hope for response is that we will see something we don't have, see the good in it, ask God for it, and wait throughout our month, our year, our life, to be given it in the way a father gives things. Yet we think it's all rules, stuff to do ourselves, stuff to obey in the flesh. So we build religion, church stuff, doctrine, to help us improve ourselves with our own carnal thinking and the system it makes and requires us to serve. And we vow pious, heartfelt vows to it and punish anyone who doesn't seem adequately respectful toward it all. 
There is so much that's clearly not rules in there. Inspiring stuff. Stuff that's not meant to be obeyed. It has a musical about two lovers having sex on a bed made of cedar beams until they need to order in some apples to regain their strength, professing melodramatic love, taking an inventory of each other's bodies, then separating, then waking each other up at weird hours of the night, then running around the city and surrounding countryside in the middle of the night looking for one another and so on. Don Miller wants to teach the Song of Solomon, this book of erotic poetry, in a how-to approach, just for laughs. I would, too. Breasts like towers, lads, like clusters of grapes, those are the qualities the Word of God instructs you to look for in the breasts of a godly wife, young Christian men. Go out and find those breasts, seek them, described for your learning and edification here in the Song of Solomon. I'll be praying that you do. Remember not to lose sight of those breasts clearly outlined in the precious Word of God for you as you go about your Christian life this week. Towers, clusters of grapes. And have sex until you need to phone room service for apples. Red Delicious are best for that. Never, Granny Smith. Oh, and the bed has to be made of cedar in order to be properly scriptural. Lebanese cedar, if you can afford it. Your wife doesn't necessarily have to be Lebanese, though, and you should only have one wife, unlike Solomon, because polygamy was for the Jewish patriarchs only. But the Song of Solomon clearly outlines that your wife should be black. Black, but comely. Bill didn't believe me that it wasn't an apple that Adam ate. There are apples mentioned in the Bible, but that's not what Adam ate. That was some other kind of fruit entirely. Solomon wanted some apples after a session of intense lovemaking, though, to reinvigorate himself. But I grew up with people who unthinkingly turned poetry into law took what had been inspiring descriptions of the perfect, unearned love that God has for us, that Jesus showed us when he lived on earth, and turned them into tools for judging ourselves and others with. Instead of feeling hope at the promise of what the fruit of the Spirit was going to cause in you, you could despair over how far short you fell from this ideal standard of rule-keeping. As a child, when there was talk of a new convert to Christianity anywhere, I often heard people say things like, well, it's good that he professes salvation, but I'd like to see more fruit. And by fruit, that person did not mean love, joy, peace, or any of the rest. He or she invariably meant that the newly saved individual should have stopped going to the movie theater and drinking beer and attending NHL games and so on by now, should be living a fundamentalist lifestyle should be visibly under the rules, should have gotten rid of his or her worldly habits. All that stuff was thought of as fruits of salvation, piety. Yet nobody was looking to see that person becoming more loving, joyful, peaceful, tolerant, forgiving, and so on. They wanted piety, right now. After all, that person might ask for his or her place at the Lord's table soon, and we didn't want to have to say no and have to come up with some reason or other. The original message of God sent Jesus Christ for you and his spirit working in you will transform you into a more loving person, a beautiful person like himself, which is why Jesus came and died for you to begin with, had been utterly subverted into, if you keep these rules, these rules will give you the outer appearance of being a far more righteous person than you really are right up until the rapture. This is what God wants for us. You want to see how to do that little Bible trick yourself? Watch this. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. 
It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. See, that's poetry. Beautiful. God is love, and this is what love is like. And it all comes from him alone. You want some of this? But just by chopping those phrases apart, numbering them, and making them into rules, you can badger your children with them. You can make them keenly feel how very much they fall short every single day of their lives of perfectly manifesting the love of God to others. You can urge them to be a good testimony by using their fleshly willpower to keep these rules. Picture this tacked up in a kid's bedroom, in your bedroom. The 14 Love Rules in God's Precious Word Number 1. You have to be patient. For example, with your sister, she's only little. Number 2. You have to be kind. You are often unkind to your brothers. Number 3. You have to not envy, not even David Jefferson or anyone else who is showing off his family's wealth like that. Number 4. You have to not boast, not like David Jefferson always seems to be doing. Pray that the Lord teach dear David some humility. We've tried to be a good example to him, but I fear it's having no effect. Number five, you have to not be arrogant. Again, don't play with David Jefferson. A little leaven. Number six, you have to not be rude like you were to your mother last week when she commented on your attire. She didn't mean anything by the words homeless person. Number seven. You have to not insist on your own way like you always do. You have to do what I insist you do and your mother and your teachers and those at meeting. Number eight. You have to not be irritable or resentful. It really annoys me when you act like that. You've been very grouchy this week. Not enough sleep, clearly. And I've had it with your grouchy nonsense. Number nine, you have to not rejoice at wrongdoing. When Devin says bad things at school, you should pray for his soul, not laugh at him. And movies and TV shows and video games, which involve guns and stealing, are wrong. This verse tells us, so none of those for you. Number ten, you have to rejoice with the truth. You have a pretty sour face a lot of the time. Stop your pouting. It doesn't suit you. Number eleven, you have to bear all things, even lima beans and multiplication tables. I can't stand a bit more of your complaining about them. Number 12. You have to believe all things. Listen to Mr. Plank at Sunday school, except about baptism. Listen to Ms. Brownell at school, except about evolution. Number 13. You have to hope all things. I've heard some very negative talk from you lately. Negative talk is very unhelpful, so stop it. It's bad. Number 14. You have to endure all things. Again, don't complain when I make you empty the trash or clean your room. I shouldn't have to put up with it being dirty, and I won't put up with your laziness. P.S. You really aren't very good at being loving. Be loving like me and your sister. Your sister is far more loving than you in general. 
If you really wanted to feel crippling amounts of shame, all you had to do was take the verse, the, the poetry version that I read earlier, and replace the word love with your own name and laugh ruefully at what a poor description of you it really was. Michael is patient and kind. Ha! Ruth says, I grew up with my mom badgering us with, be kindly affection one to another. Any time my brothers and I fought, she thought that beating us on the head with that scripture was enough, and she didn't need to model kind affection for us to copy. She modeled the exact opposite. Yesterday, I read part of the Bible. I used the little leather-bound 19th century J.N. Darby translation that my dearly departed cat Sid once most spitefully urinated, that's micturated, upon for reasons known only to himself and which has not entirely lost that odor despite my best efforts. I tried to feel what I read rather than reading the Bible to see what it said I could do and could not do. So, rather than getting some advice and instructions about oxen, husbandry, and the treatment of slaves, which no part of the book has any ethical problems with, I read the book of Lamentations. It's no secret that I like to lament and usually feel regretful most of the time about any number of things. So it seemed like a good choice for me. I read the whole thing. It fit me like a glove, and it was itself, and I was careful not to try to make it serve me and my predilections and needs at all. The overall feeling of the book called to a responsive space inside myself. There was really nothing to obey. It was filled with feelings, lamentations, far more than ideas or doctrines or even prophecies. The book seemed to be Jeremiah bemoaning what God had done to Israel and feeling a little bit hard done by and maybe even resentful of God's dealings. Religious people get very scared and angry with me whenever I feel a little bit hard done by and maybe even resentful toward God myself. But in Lamentations, I saw really no message straight from God put into the lips of Jeremiah to pass on to the people of Israel that I could find. It sounded like Jeremiah's own emotional response to the destruction of Jerusalem as someone who lived there and loved it. There weren't shoulds and should-nots for the most part, though there was hope that God would one day stop allowing their enemies to oppress them and would bring them out of slavery and set them back on their feet, being filled with hope certainly wasn't presented in a tidy moral as upright behavior. It wasn't prefaced or packaged or interpreted at all. There was no moral or application, really. It was just Jeremiah saying what he felt. It sounded like he was off the clock when it came to being a prophet. The usual prophet's message is, God feels this way because you're screwing up and cheating on him. So repent or he'll blow your house of cards down to show you how precarious your position truly is. And if you do repent, he'll forgive you. And it's entirely lacking in lamentations because it's too late. The time for that came and went. Israel didn't repent. They worshipped stupid, made-up gods which suited them better than the real deal and his noted lack of cooperation and meeting of preconceptions. And now Jeremiah is bemoaning what happened after the fact and maybe even resenting it a bit. And I could feel it. But that's not how the Bible was used back when I was a youngin. It was used as a rule book and as exhaustive evidence that our meeting was the only game in town. Lost in Translations Some of our traditional doctrine absolutely required the King James Version in order to seem supported by Scripture properly. 
One example, the Plymouth Brethren I was raised among were fond of teaching what they called the doctrine of the divine ground of gathering. It used to be called the Circle of Fellowship Doctrine, back when it was only a Kelly Lowe Continental Brethren thing, first mentioned by F.W. Grant, expanded upon by R.C. Campbell, and nowadays spooned out to willing folks by that most prolific of division spin doctors, Bruce Anstey, among my own T.W. folks. My friend's dad spoke on the one right place at our group's Montreal conference just last fall to no objections whatsoever, though many TWs tell me they do not like that doctrine one bit anymore. I listened to the MP3 posted online, as those of us under discipline aren't really welcome to attend Bible conferences in person. I did one time anyway, but had to leave when they had supper, as I had been asked beforehand not to eat with them. Here's what he says at the end of a talk in which he does a concordant search which proves conclusively that the word place occurs numerous times in the King James translation. Just a little thought, brethren, to exercise their hearts. Don't let anybody ever tell you there's no such thing in Scripture as one place. God says there is. It's up to you and I to find it. It's up to you and I to be exercised about it. One of my sons always throws things in my face and he says, you can't force an exercise on your brethren. You know, it's not a question of forcing an exercise on you at all. The problem is that so often we don't have an exercise period. We're not concerned about what the Lord might say about it. We want to do our own thing. We want to have our own way. It's about me. Nothing is about me. Nothing is about you. But it's all about Him. That in all things, He might have the preeminence. And so I challenge you, if you want to use a concordance, that's fine. But look up the place. You'll find it's the place, one place, a place, no place. But thank God, by His grace, at least for myself, I know I am in the right place. And I trust you can say that too. Whatever it's called, this is the doctrine which explained why we couldn't just go to the church of our choice if we got annoyed or bored with Plymouth Brethren crap, why we had to stay. We used Matthew 18 and 20 to feel like all of this was inarguable. One Right Place Our Tunbridge Wells group certainly wasn't the only Brethren group to claim to be the only right one. Elizabeth writes... I belong to the Needed Truth Brethren, very popular in Scotland at the turn of the century. Their watchword is, each several building, fitly framed together, makes a holy temple unto the Lord, Ephesians 2 and 21. That meant that only Needed Truth buildings, fitly framed together, became the house of God on earth, nobody else. To support the one-place doctrine, my own TW group, which are not the house of God on earth, according to the Needed Truth Brethren, who don't have the Lord in the midst, according to us, use the 20th verse of Matthew 18. Thing is, Matthew 18 certainly isn't about Christians coming together to worship and praise our Lord Jesus Christ on Sunday morning because he died for us. The Lord Jesus was very much alive when he told them the things in chapter 18, and these things were, in that case, very much written to the current Jewish disciples, who weren't gathering in the name of a Savior who had gone away. In fact, it hardly seems to be about worship at all, let alone our breaking of bread, which had yet to be instituted. But that didn't bother our guys. 
they applied Matthew 18 and 20 how they wanted. And how they wanted to apply it was out of context. You buy a good bucket of paint, you could apply it to anything you like. Because, of course, something else you have to do when dealing across all those millennia, hemispheres, and cultures since these words were written is you have to decide how to apply, use, or interpret them. When Paul writes to someone and says, I'm paraphrasing slightly, Hey, Bob, I forgot my jacket. Could you pick it up and bring it along next time you visit so I don't have to go there and get it myself? The reader has to decide if maybe this was a private, literal message meant only for that time between Paul and Bob, and although interesting, has little relevance to any of us right now except perhaps to illustrate the trust Paul felt he could place in another Christian, such that he could expect his jacket to be brought unto him. Oh, how we too should be willing to do things for one another, beloved brethren, even if only to deliver people's mislaid jackets. Or maybe this is clearly written as a comfort to any one of us who tends to forget things, to take heart. Even the Apostle Paul sometimes left things behind, so don't worry. Or maybe this is a dire warning against being careless with the material possessions God has given you for use in serving Him. Paul knew we would need just such a warning, and so purposely left behind his jacket so that he would then have to ask for it and could write down a lesson to all of us of the sad consequences of carelessness. May we all take heed to this solemn portion of God's precious word. Or maybe the jacket is a thinly veiled symbol which refers to the 70 weeks of Daniel showing how Syria, the king of the north where people need warm jackets, will threaten the tribe of Simeon, surely left behind by their god, of whom Paul is a symbol. Yet the servants of the Lord will certainly restore Simeon in that day, foretold in the latter half of Revelation, just as Paul's jacket was duly restored to bring warmth to his apostolic torso. How precious to take an interest in the things of the Lord when we are young. The, the beast will roar in 84 after all. Surely the time is short. That's how applying the Bible works. And the Plymouth Brethren took the 20th verse of Matthew 18 and applied it in such a way as to justify the one right place idea. The notion was that our particular branch of the many Plymouth Brethren groups was the only one doing Sunday morning worship, sorry, Lord's Day morning breaking of bread, in full obedience to God's precious word. All the other Brethren groups, and worse yet, the churches, were following independency and human indulgence in the sensual flesh with stained glass, instrumental music, robes, incense, and other things that had no place in the thing at all. Our guys could then be incensed about what went on in those other churches, none of which could hold a candle to ours with its fluorescent lighting and unstained glass, no massive organ to be seen anywhere either, no choir or worship team, just us being right. What saith King James? Here's how we use the King James to support our one right place doctrine. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Matthew 18 and 20, the King James Version. First, we utterly ignored the rest of the chapter in which that verse sits and what the Lord seemed to be saying in his entire speech. Then, we could parse it up like this. Number one, where? A divinely chosen place, not the church of your choice. Number two, Two or three. A divinely chosen group of people, not your friends. Number three. Are gathered. 
a divine gathering of a group of people all into one place actively done by God the Holy Spirit, not merely a human endeavor. Number four, together. A divinely imparted unity, not a human effort at unity born of sad compromise with others. Number five, in my name. A divine center to have been gathered around, not a church with its own name on a sign out front. Number six, there am I. A divine person, not just the Pope or a minister or anything like that. Number seven, in the midst of them. A divine presence. See above. This made a tidy list of seven things God himself had done in setting up what the Plymouth Brethren alone were correctly doing each Lord's Day morning. The numerology of the Bible makes seven magic and divine, while six is human and flawed, and eight is beyond human comprehension. Five is right out. Take 40 days sometime and learn all about numerology. We could connect all this with the story of there being one tabernacle for the Israelites under Moses, led by the presence of God himself as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, and explain how that other people in other nations could make altars and temples and things, but the Jews had God in a special way. We could then talk about how, once the Jews were done wandering in the wilderness, God chose Jerusalem as the place to set his name there. This meant that to worship God properly in Israel, you had to go to Jerusalem, like a Muslim going to Mecca. In the Old Testament, when the kingdom of Israel tore itself into two countries due to infighting, they had a division, the newly minted kingdom of Judah retained Jerusalem to worship at. But the new kingdom of Israel, not to be confused with Judah, had lost possession of Jerusalem and had to set up a different city to be the center of worship. At first, the Israelite center of worship was Shechem, followed by a series of new kings setting up a series of new capital cities and places to worship God as they saw fit. And in the Bible, it is very clear that they couldn't just do that. It had to be Jerusalem. God said, that's where his name was in the temple at Jerusalem. So the brethren felt that we could apply these stories in this way. You couldn't just keep setting up new church organizations. You had to go with the original one, set up by God, or you were a spin-off imitator. You were an Elvis impersonator to the Plymouth Brethren's bona fide Elvis Aaron Presley. Where the Roman Catholic Church claimed to be the original church by claiming a direct lineage to Jesus through the Apostle Peter, the Plymouth Brethren claimed a direct lineage to Jesus through the Apostle Paul. The Lord Jesus supposedly set up the whole ground upon which Gentile Christians were to be gathered in Matthew 18 and 20, which again really doesn't seem to be about that at all if you read the whole chapter. And then they were far more interested in claiming lineage through Paul than through Peter, whose impetuous folly they enjoyed laughing at. To Brethren people, Peter is mainly a sadly comic figure in the Bible. So all this is what we taught, that these other churches were wrong, and that we weren't even a church anyway, certainly not just another church. We were the only Christian group gathered together by God. Leaving us was leaving him. Wandering from us was wandering from the path and the presence of the Lord himself. One of the exercises I have over the years is the empty chairs. The empty chairs used to be our children, young people. They're gone. 
Paul says, who did hinder you? Who did hinder you that you should not obey the truth? Dear young people, if there's somebody here that feels I have offended you, I'm sorry. It was not intended. Don't let somebody drive you away from the very person who wants you to be there. He says, let me hear thy voice. Let me see thy countenance. Oh, don't take a victim approach to your young people in your lives. The Lord Jesus was the only real victim. I don't know who originally said the T.W. Brethren worship the Holy Trinity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Bible, but I think it's pretty accurate. It was almost like one of the persons of the Godhead wasn't given as much airtime as the King James Bible itself. And we were certainly told that if we ever thought God was speaking to us, that he spoke only through the Bible nowadays, not the Spirit. Why does it need to be new and international? So we had Matthew 18 and 20. But then along came those other modern translations. And the New International Version put it, For where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. Matthew 18 and 20, the New International Version. Whoops. Now, if that's what the verse really means, you've got a description of the people gathering together under their own steam by their own choice in the name of Jesus, not them passively being gathered by the active efforts of God the Holy Spirit. Suddenly that passive tense that Bruce Anstey argues makes this the work of the Holy Spirit and not the people is swept away and was never there to begin with. And to make matters worse, if you look into ancient copies of the scriptures and understand or can Google Greek a bit, it could mean either. It certainly doesn't only mean one or the other. Now that's a problem, a deadly serious problem. If you need to be the one right church, that is, otherwise it doesn't matter at all. The Brethren response to this was to tell us that the New International Version was of Satan and to keep on reading the King James only with Brethren Patriarch John Nelson Darby's Victorian translation as a reference book. So our patriarchs kept right on teaching that we were gathered personally by the Holy Spirit while the other churches had gathered on their own quite without God's involvement or interest. Because if God had been involved, he'd have brought them to our street address too, just like he'd done with us, who were mostly born into that culture anyway. Why would God create confusion and disunity? How blessed we were to have heeded his clear clarion call and to have been gathered by the Holy Spirit in simple childlike obedience to it. If, as I had, you'd read the Old Testament prophets and what God had to say in Revelation to complacent Laodicea, you might have predicted that our huge, bloated, smug T.W. Brethren system was about to fall down and shatter into a million pieces at the hand of God. You might have, but I didn't, so I was shocked when it happened. A mess. So, I grew up being taught that I didn't get to choose my church because there was only one right place to go. And then, Half of the men there, mostly the ones who taught me at Sunday school and youth group, suddenly went and set up a new breaking of bread one week halfway across town. And they wanted me to go there. 
because they had been unable to deal with the old, close-mindedly conservative, traditional faction running our place with beetle-browed, pig-headed, dogged implacability. The close-mindedly conservative, traditional faction of which I found myself an increasingly uneasy part. So we had a mess. Was the Lord in the midst at two places in Smith's Falls each Sunday now? If so, could he be in the midst at even more places in town? Or was he in neither, as we'd had a division? Or was he just in one? It was ours, though, right? That stuff made me think. Was the NIV right? And we should read it as, For wherever any two or three people who say they are Christians say they gather in my name, there am I with them. Or should we add our thoughts into the King James Version instead, and understand it to say, For only where two or three real, true, Bible-obeying Christians are gathered together in my name by the Holy Spirit and not their own efforts, there am I in the midst of them and nowhere else. It was pretty clear that, whether we admitted it or not, we had to mentally add words to make the phrases mean only what we wanted them to. As they sat on the page, they were open to interpretation. They might even be addressing a different topic altogether. Something other than whether Jesus was in the midst Lord's Day mornings at the meeting hall at George Street in Smith Falls, or in Chimo Senior Elementary School on Ross Street with the others. A Pronoun Shift Something I noticed was that both translations said, In my name, but we were being taught it as if the wording was, to my name, which makes little sense, I realized. In fact, all of our official letters to other assemblies consistently said, to the saints gathered, to the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, at, and not, to the saints gathered in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, at, quite despite that golden Matthew 18.20 wording in the only translation we accepted, the King James in always got changed to our two. Now, when Plymouth Brethren people misquote scripture without noticing it, something suspicious is going on, I always think. We know our Bibles. Why the need for the wording change? What point do we need the Bible to make that it doesn't properly make until we change a word here or there? When you do something in someone's name, you consider what they want done, and you do it on their behalf because you share their concerns. Open up in the name of the law. I declare this door open in the name of the queen. To, though, is a word that implies an orientation, position, or direction, as in, are you bowing to the north, the west, or the east when you pray? Or else, I walked all the way to the corner of Bridge Avenue and Mill Street and stood there for an hour. I went to Syracuse, New York, Saturday. If you wanted to use Matthew 18 and 20 to discount the church efforts of others, you really needed it to say to rather than in. If it merely said in my name, as it does, any number of people could claim they were all separately doing any number of things in his name. But to would mean that we were the only ones occupying the geographical and spiritual place where we all needed to come to and be. We had come to the right place. All the other Christians needed to move from where they were to where God wanted them to be. And it's nice to be the right people gathered to the right place. You don't think we're right, nor that we've come to the only right place? Take it up with God. He's the one who did this. He told us to come to this street address, not in this street address. On Sunday morning, 
Our chairs aimed inward to face the table we placed right in the center. It was a physical wooden table, quite easy to confuse with the purely metaphysical The Lord's Table. It was sitting there in our midst, wasn't it? It ought to be. We'd put it there, with the bread and wine on it, and the box for putting money in to give to Mr. Tidy to fund his going and giving our pamphlets to free Methodists and Baptist businessmen, store owners, and bus drivers in Accra, Ghana. The Mr. Hayhoes all taught us that as the Lord's Day, the Lord's Supper, and the Lord's Table are each mentioned only once in Scripture, this means they are clearly of extremely special importance. Oddly, they themselves mention this many, many times. So, wooden table in the middle, all chairs facing inward to face it. This is how chairs were oriented for the breaking of bread, and then the chairs were moved to a different configuration for Sunday School and Gospel. Sunday School and Gospel were the only two weekly meetings where there'd be a guy, clearly not the Holy Spirit, walking to the front and standing up so the chairs were in a pair of rows like in a conventional church. The Lord was not, we were taught, in the midst at Sunday School nor Gospel meeting. Though they happened every week and we were expected to attend, they were not assembly Assembly meetings, meetings and the seats were differently arranged. For Tuesday prayer meeting and Thursday Bible reading, the chairs were back facing inward because we were taught that those two meetings were assembly meetings and the Lord was in the midst in that special Matthew 18 and 20 way he'd been during breaking of bread, but not during Sunday school and gospel. What was being said wouldn't be that one guy. It would be the Holy Spirit talking, no matter whose mouth he used. That's what we thought. That's what we taught. And we didn't think there was anything odd or arbitrary to that. It was just normal, proper. One eccentric lady, once division had caused various local brethren to meet in someone's living room, kept disrupting the feng shui of said living room by nudging the coffee table on which the bread and wine sat over more toward the midst of the living room with her foot during meeting. This annoyed the people who lived there no end. But that was only one of the reasons why they excommunicated her. She threatened suicide. They did it anyway. To the best of my knowledge, she is alive still, breaking bread in some other house. One hopes the table is in the very center of the room in which they meet. The Roman Catholics sometimes teach the doctrine of transubstantiation. This is the idea that when they eat the communion wafers and drink the communion wine, these things don't merely represent the tissue and blood of the Lord Jesus, but actually magically transform into them quite literally. The Plymouth Brethren taught that though we couldn't quite see him, the Lord Jesus was sort of physically, invisibly, literally in the middle of us for three out of five meetings a week and not present at any other church in town, just ours and our one in the next town over and so on around the world. If you didn't show up, you'd miss being in the presence of God himself. We taught that this was why we couldn't go anywhere else, no matter how bad things got there. If we left... Christ would not come with us. He'd be back at our old street address, and we'd miss being in his presence. We taught that Jesus had been invited into our hearts to stay, and that also the Holy Spirit lived in our bodies. Yet we also spoke of coming into the presence of the Lord Jesus, too, three times a week, with him in our hearts all week long to begin with. The scriptural support for the imagery of inviting Jesus into our hearts is, shall we say, somewhat absent mostly based on that verse in Revelation to the Christians at Laodicea, which makes no reference to the door being the door to anyone's heart, so much as where they lived or perhaps worshipped. 
I think all this shows how hard people will fight to make sure the Bible is worded and translated and interpreted to make them look right. And it requires thinking that is rigidly black and white and an utter lack of theological humility. I think this lack of humility is what brought us down in the end. Black and White Thinking I have sometimes had the chance to hear experts talk about things, people who really know more about a given subject than us regular folk. And when they talk about it, they talk about that special thing they know about in a very different way from us regular folk. For one thing, they know more than they can easily tell us in only the one lecture, conversation, book, or whatever, and they keep mentioning this almost with embarrassment. They know that there's a lot to the subject and that they aren't doing it justice. They are unable to forget that there are a number of related things that are complicated and time-consuming, not only to explain, but to understand in the first place, and they are forced to leave out any number of things they really don't want to skip over, but must. Also, they know that most fields of study are more complicated than a layman suspects. Experts talk about schools of thought as to important questions and tensions between things, for instance. About parenting, they might say that good parenting is about the tension between granting freedom and teaching responsibility. About politics, they might say laws are about the tension between retaining what is of value from the past and making room for good new ideas. They talk about theories, schools of thought, thought models, and ways of looking at a given topic. And they have favorite theories, but they also recognize that there's something to be said for most of the various different ways of looking at the thing, even the ones they don't really agree with much. They like nothing better than to have a big discussion with people who see things differently. And at the end of it, when they haven't convinced everyone that it's all really quite simple and that they are right about everything, they're still quite happy. To them, there is always thinking work to be done on topics they really care about. For them, it is not about holding a position and then convincing people that all the thinking has already been done and that it has been all found to add up to that simple position. When you ask a true expert for a snap opinion or try to force him or her into taking a black or white position, usually you find that he or she resists being pushed in this way would feel dishonest to take that simple-minded position. Often, he or she will say something like, it's actually pretty complicated. There are several ways of looking at this. I'm still figuring this out myself. A lot of very intelligent people are still working on that one. And then they give you a whole bucket load of additional, better questions to ponder than the one you asked them. When people asked Jesus things, he gave them better questions instead of answers most times. People who aren't experts don't talk like that at all. Often they will say something like, I'm 100% against whatever it is, and anyone who isn't is just plain wrong. I don't know how stupid you'd have to be to think that way. It's very simple. End of conversation. Because either they think it's simpler than it really is, or else they're pretending it's simple in order to be more convincing and to win arguments. And often they shut down anyone who mentions anything that reveals that there's more than one side to the coin. They don't want to hear about the different schools of thought, and they can't treat someone who disagrees with them with any respect. So it breaks down a bit like this when dealing with the purest examples of expert versus opinionated layman archetypes. Question. Israel or Palestine? Who's right to support? That's actually a more complex question than most people think. I can't really be pushed into a simple yes or no, black or white, for or against position. Support can mean an awful lot of things. 
even the question of identifying which citizens are Israel and which ones are truly Palestinian can be complex at this point, given what's happened even in the past two generations, with the self-chosen definitions of Phoenician and Arab complicating everything. It's a moving target, for sure. I have written a few books on the subject and read quite a few more, and I can tell you that there's an awful lot to be considered, especially when one takes into account all the relevant factors, the, the history, recent developments, what's going on this week in the news, interestingly enough, some of the findings of archaeologists recently and some texts which have been uncovered and are in the middle of being translated by some of my friends. I'm paying close attention to this one, I can tell you, formulating some preliminary observations observations this afternoon, actually. Israel, end of discussion. It's as simple as that. Well, actually, there's... I simply do not understand how anyone can see it any other way. How stupid and blind do you have to be? It's so sad. Very true. You do not understand that. And yes, it is sad. One of the really complicated things about the Bible is that frequently it simply doesn't take a position on many of the things we want it to. It does not, for instance, take a clear stance against genocide or enslaving human beings, on abused women being allowed to leave their husbands, on child molestation. But we really, really want the Bible to sketch out what our positions on 21st century stuff ought to be scripturally. Stuff like morning after pills, stem cell research, welfare, gay marriage, intellectual property, use and abuse of the internet, capital punishment, gender reassignment surgery for hermaphroditic people, gun control, stuff like that. And if the Bible doesn't do this directly... We do a bit of puppetry with some scraps of text snipped from far-flung bits of Bible and sewn carefully together. And then we say it's both simple and obvious. End of discussion, we say. We don't understand, we say, how anyone could see it any other way. I've always hated being told I'm just trying to make things complicated. I really believe things already are complicated nuanced, best seen on continuums rather than in boxes. It's true that there's definitely such a thing as overthinking things, but I also believe that if you oversimplify your view of what's going on around you and your role in the world, eventually you're not really looking at it at all. You're being blind, so you can be sure. I've even had church folks quote the Bible at me and say, much learning hath made thee mad. They are unbothered when I, with my much learning, point out the fact that they are quoting a guy named Festus, of all things, who is in the midst of thoughtlessly dismissing an apostle of the Lord sent with the gospel. They are unbothered to stand side by side with Festus and quote him at me. Yet sometimes my pointing that out maketh them surely to grow wroth and sore amazed. I am accustomed to being warned that too much thinking about the Bible, anything that goes much beyond Sunday school, much beyond that moment I took my first step of faith, anything from a Bible school, anything that isn't childlike or even childish in its scope, is dangerous. No good will come of it, not unless it's from Daniel and Revelation. Just as idle hands were once seen as the devil's playground, when I was growing up an active mind was seen in the same way. With great suspicion, there was no room for intellectualism in any of our Bible discussions. It got sent packing right quick. And I always smelled fear in that kind of attitude. I saw a bit more of the whites of people's eyes than they perhaps intended, rolling around a bit wildly in their heads, almost telling me, Don't look at my beliefs. They won't stand up if you do. This seemed to come down to the idea that the job of a Christian is to stubbornly believe things for God things that may be false, ridiculous, contradictory, ugly, cruel, simple-minded, and shallow. 
Well, I wanted to believe what was real. I'd always been too scared to simply believe things that had clearly been made up by who knew what person for who knew what reason. It didn't matter to me whether it was Christianity, communism, or gluten fear. I had a terror of getting pulled into an unthinking, panicking mob and sharing whatever fate they then earn for all of us. To this day, I have no faith in the wisdom of mobs. It's not hard to make them stampede and trample folks in their haste. Fear is your tool if you're trying to do that. In my twenties, I needed to decide if God was real. I needed to think thoughts by myself, even if they were complicated and messy. I got the distinct impression that many church folks believe that God was real because we made him real by our weekly religious routines. It was kind of like when they said at funerals, Tim, Tim may have left, left us, but he'll never really be gone so long as we keep him alive in our memories. And I would think, I know what you mean, but he's dead, all right. Just look at him, lying there, gone, passed on and joined the choir invisible. I wasn't willing to imagine God just so he could be alive in my head only. He needed to stand on his own two feet, I felt. And in my life, with church folks and worldly people, I was getting hit from both sides with two apparently contradictory positions fighting for primacy in my thoughts. The one side said, everything is made of God's ideas, including us. The entire dance of molecules and everything besides, it all comes from his creative imagination. He is the source of all ideas. The human race itself is one of God's ideas. The other view was, God is just one of our ideas. Real things are made of molecules, and he isn't, so he's not real. If it doesn't have molecules, then it doesn't exist. God's just one of the imaginary things made up by our creative imaginations. Not something real like justice, love, freedom, or taxes, or money. Human beings are the source of all ideas. I felt like I had to really think about, can we know God's real? And consider the opposite of that, too, the whole who made who question, formerly known in scholarly circles as the ACDC conundrum. And I felt that the only honest answer to can we know was not really, but we really think he is real. I felt that in order to be honest, when people asked me, is there a God? I could only answer, I, I think, think so. so. That, that makes, makes sense, sense to me. But I don't, I don't think, think I believe in the God you're imagining I do. It's actually pretty complicated. It's the tension between deciding to believe something and knowing I don't know everything there is to know. But people will ask why I can't just follow a child's simple faith and why I can't give simple black and white answers to simple-minded questions. Melody writes, I discover that the Bible is not as black and white as the brethren like to make it. The brethren are very uncomfortable with any sort of ambiguity. They believe that all the answers to everything are right there in scripture in black and white and red. It's okay to disagree with people. You can disagree politely and keep on being friends. Not everyone in my life has to think, feel, or believe the exact same things. Ambiguity is okay. It's okay to not have the answers. It's okay to not be able to prove the existence of God. I can only testify to what he has actually done for me. I can't speak to whether he created the world in seven literal days, 7,000 years, or whatever. And I don't care. When she says black and white and red, Melody is referring to those Bibles which print any dialogue of Jesus in red lettering. My dad said that those were bad because every word in the whole Bible is the word of Jesus as he is God. So no red letter Bibles for us. Melody's attitude is pretty much my attitude too. I'm pretty sure there are things I can't know. 
so I'm very sure that I can't care that much about them either. What I've found is saying things like that gets a very specific but consistent response. It makes Christian, after 50 shades of black and white Christian, give me the side eye and draw away. I've revealed I'm one of them, not one of us. Ideas I like ideas. I think the Bible is full of them. I collect them. I don't even have to feel a given idea has any great merit in order to hear it, try to understand it, and try to get some kind of a handle on who thinks that way and what that's all about. Then I maintain a bit of familiarity with that idea being around until I encounter it again. I think of who and what sort of people liked it. I remember how they defended liking it. I keep track of who and what sort of people hate that idea and how they defend not liking it. Because ideas never really die. Each idea you encounter, no matter how smart or how stupid, is just going to keep cropping up here and there for the rest of your life. Ideas are spiritual. Might as well get to know them so you can keep from tripping over them in the dark every single decade and getting mad every single time like it's a piece of your kid's Lego. Have a place in your head where all of that goes. Put that stuff on a shelf somewhere. I've seen some very strong, good ideas held by some very weak, bad people doing weak, bad things with said ideas riding shotgun or driving the getaway car. And I've seen the opposite. The attitude or spirit with which a person clings to a given idea seems almost as important as what the idea actually even is. It would be nice to think that if you cling to good ideas, they'll make you good, or that only bad people cling to dubious ones. But I don't think that's the world we live in. How and why matter as much as what sometimes. I don't think ideas are like facts. Facts are inorganic. Facts just sit there. I think ideas are more alive, changeable, and useful than facts. The Bible is alive because it has ideas in it and because it presents and connects us with a living Jesus. Ideas don't lie down and wait for you to decide to build stuff with them. If you won't take advantage of an idea, the idea will soon enough find someone else who will. They have energy. And I think ideas take some thinking in order to decide how to respond to them in one's own life. In fact, I think when the brain looks at facts, it generally can't avoid coming up with ideas. I think that thinking involves actively having ideas rather than passively taking in facts. And I think thinking is good an unpopular opinion in some circles I realize, I grew up in those circles, at meeting and outside of it. Case in point, to this day, I can't use the very word idea on a Brethren forum online without incurring something along the lines of, Mike, was wondering a little about your use of the word ideas. Remember, our ideas are worth nothing. God's word is everything. We follow the truth, not ideas. Let us spend time on what the Bible tells us, rather than our own flawed human understanding. And then, of course, that person invariably delivers some fairly flawed, clearly human understanding of something, slaps some scripture scraps all over their ideas, and says it's not them, but God talking. So you'd best agree. You'd best obey. Or you know what that makes you. Thing is... You can't obey ideas. You can't even obey facts. I don't obey gravity. I don't obey digestion or biochemistry. It's more of an interaction thing. There's give and take, and the Bible isn't just full of directives. There are a whole lot of ideas in there. 
If you skip past all that, looking for things to obey, you're going to miss an awful lot of very important stuff. And if you are determined to try to turn ideas in the Bible into directives, rules, or guidelines, you might have to kill them to do it, in order to tame them, to make them sit still. I often also get... Mike, I've read through a number of your own lengthy opinions. What I would like to see now is for you to speak directly from the divinely inspired word of God, brother. Our own ideas are not worth pondering or sharing with others. He is Lord. Then things go south. I explain that I am not claiming to be doing anything more than sharing my thoughts and feelings. I point out that none of us are doing anything more than that at all. I admit that these thoughts and feelings of mine are partly inspired and informed by a lifetime of reading the Bible and praying and living my life. I mention, however, that they do not in any way represent me claiming to speak for God or to know precisely what God has to say about, for example, YouTube, drone strikes, or gluten. By this point, a number of online Christians have decided that we can't be Facebook friends anymore, because the Bible is so clear, isn't it? So simple. We just have to obey it. But as I've said, you can't obey ideas, and the Bible is positively full of them. It causes them, too, more often than it answers anything I've found. The Bible discussion style, as I've experienced it online, seems to involve trying to out-solemn each other and be stiffly offended at more things than anyone else, to be more dire and more worried and to give more corrections and warnings, all the while quoting chunks of Bible without explaining what one sees there. There's this idea that I see over and over. If I quote a bunch of the Bible to you without comment... If you will simply read what I'm quoting without my telling you what I think it means, you will, of course, immediately see exactly what I see and think exactly what I think. Because it's the Bible. Unless, of course, you're unlearned, disobedient, and foolish and inattentive to Scripture. I've had people unfriend me on Facebook because I've spoken on a topic referring in general terms to chapters or books or themes running through the writings of Paul, but refuse to decorate my posts with a bunch of scripture scraps. I quote an awful lot, but in a casual way, without chapter and versing, and without pretending the Bible proves I'm right, I try to address recurring threads and themes, not just isolated phrases. And that's not cool, apparently doesn't count as talking about the Bible, stinketh in their nostrils. Even when I explain that I think it would be dishonest and irreverent to pretend the scripture outright says the stuff I come up with after I had read it, that's not good enough for a lot of people, and their countenance falls. But honestly, I feel that grabbing a bunch of out-of-context Bible phrases from all over the Old and New Testaments, proof-texting, is dishonest, actually misleading. I think more humility and personal ownership of and accountability for our own traditions, ideas, and interpretations needs to be shown. But that often doesn't happen. George has read the Bible. Tim has read the Bible. George thinks he's supposed to baptize his infant children. Tim thinks he should let his kids choose to baptize themselves when they're old enough. Tim has read the Bible. George has read the Bible. They see this matter differently. Then, no fruit of the Spirit goes on here. George and Tim have a big argument, shouting, Read it! at each other. No! Read it again! Properly! Think harder! Listen to what it says better! And then decide they can't worship together anymore. Their kids suddenly aren't allowed to play together either. Because Tim's kids aren't even baptized. And because George's kids are. I think doing a whole lot of proof texting 
is nonsense. Referring to the Bible to show why you think something is one thing. Saying the Bible is telling someone else not to think differently from you is quite another. Because otherwise, I can say, Psalm 14 verse 1 says, There is no God, so there isn't one. And when someone disagrees, I can angrily accuse them of disagreeing with Scripture. I have purposely chosen a really obvious example of bad proof texting there, in which the quoter is skipping the words, The fool hath said in his heart. But I could use the Scripture to argue absolutely anything. I really could. It's not hard, if you're inventive or unprincipled or insane. The Taylor-Hales exclusives use scripture to prove that God requires everyone to keep hard liquor in the house for visiting elders and also not to keep any pets. And thousands of Taylor-Hale EBs across the globe duly comply. They buy whiskey for the elders and refuse kittens to their kids and put the family dog to sleep because of the Bible. It's so clear in there, so simple. Only an unbeliever wouldn't see that, wouldn't see the emperor's new rules. You're not an unbeliever, are you? Due to this kind of thing, I feel we need to stop pretending that our own interpretations of the scriptures are anything loftier or more divine than interpretations. We hope we read with a good spirit and intelligence and empathy, and without a personal agenda blinding us and with the Holy Spirit being involved, we, we hope that. But to many, the Bible is a magic tome which tells you to think like them, if only you pay enough attention to it, if you really read it. In fact, if I in any way describe the Bible as a book online, or refer to it as the scriptures instead of the word of God, I am going to get, Mike, the Bible is the book, the inspired word of God. It's not just a book. Even if I don't use the word just, I am going to be thought a heretic and get unfriended. Man, heaven's going to be awkward. Unjust. I have grown very suspicious of people who use the word just a lot. It's a verbal lubricant. So often they're trying to just slide something past you without you getting a close look at it. It started with the first girl who didn't ever want to talk to me or hang out anymore, suggesting that the very best thing in the world was for us to be just friends and not ruin a good friendship. Not that we were friends at all. In that case, just meant not. It continued on through people who said, why can't you two just get along when someone was messing with someone else? On to comments like, it's just wrong, or I just want to live my life. Why can't you just fit in? It's just my opinion. I have always wanted to have a close look and a bit of a conversation about any word or idea that gets lubricated with just before it so as to slip it on past like that. Why can't you just believe the word of God? Why can't you just put aside your own beliefs and just accept the truth? I've also always been suspicious of people of one idea, of people who say that life or the Bible or something equally important and widespread and complicated is all about one thing. Tolerance, for instance. Life, it's all about tolerance. The Bible, it's all about obedience, nothing else. Hebrews, it's all about repentance. They'll put their pet idea on a t-shirt or a bumper sticker or inspirational poster and then act like they've done all the necessary thinking about it and are now done thinking about it. So when I hear, it's all about whatever, I tend to hear, my brain is off. I'm done thinking and learning. Mission accomplished. And I always want to say... You realize that saying you've raised awareness of tolerance or that you support tolerance and putting the word on your wall or across your chest doesn't prove that you understand the first thing about it? 
I also want to point out that it's very easy to claim to take a position, but very complicated to have your life change as a result, change in such a way that now your world changes, in ways that run deeper than that glossy poster stock or cotton polyester blend t-shirt. It's one thing to cheer for an idea and wear the jersey for it, and it's another thing to play for the team and try to actually win. I understand that some people believe in sports, so I may be found employing sports metaphors in an attempt to communicate with them. I'm hoping it will help them hang ten and get touchdowns and stay on base instead of being out in left field half-cocked. Is life about tolerance? Probably, but it's also about other things too, right? Life can be about more than one thing. Is life, for instance, also about things like finding ways to reconcile the tension between, on the one hand, tolerating who and what you can... And on the other, realizing that there are people, ideas, situations, practices, and things in this world which are really not okay and which we are going to flat out oppose. I guess that's not going to fit on a t-shirt. I think the Bible's like that too. I realize I'm just making things complicated. I know too that deciding that tolerance is pretty keen or that everything in the Bible is about obedience isn't probably going to hurt anything. I do think, though, that if you don't actually have to change as the result of your appreciation for the idea, if you don't have to think and feel and live differently to try to improve things, if you don't find that things get complicated when you do this, that this is what we call lip service. It's a token gesture. It doesn't do anything. It's not worth the money you spent on the t-shirt. If you spent it hoping to change the world in any way besides making people think that you support tolerance and notice how aware you are being about it. I've been told marriage is all about sacrifice, or relationships are all about compromise. Some of the women who've told me this have been horribly damaged and abused, and have been saying those things to argue that they should not remove themselves from really spiritually toxic, sometimes physically dangerous situations. Or they've been trying to stop being themselves and instead be the imaginary person they believe the man in question would prefer to marry. So I'm particularly suspicious when anyone is applying the Bible and tells me the Bible's all about whatever, because I think it's about a lot of things. I don't think we should pretend it says things it doesn't just because we want a book handy that agrees with us. Not pretending the Bible says things. Dallas Willard makes a pretty simple and compelling point. He asks which topics the Bible and Jesus and the apostles themselves spend the most time discussing, and why we spend far more time trying to make it address subjects it never really does at all, not directly anyway. Why aren't we listening to the Bible say what it wants to say? Why are we so busy trying to make it say things or search for hidden messages that need to be laboriously assembled, like an Eiffel Tower built of bits of Lego found all over the planet? often color-coded charts which span millennia of history need to be used to convey these ideas. Instead of collecting together from the whole Bible every single verse fragment or principle that one could argue has something to do with a given topic, why not sometimes have a look at every single thing Jesus chose to say to a certain person or group, or on a certain occasion? Try to think about all of the things he said in that speech. And the question of how to apply bits of the Bible, literally, instructionally, metaphorically, is a tough one. There are Christians who feel that the Genesis creation story is literal, 
and that the first few days of creation were exactly 24 hours long, and that the earth revolved entirely once during that time, though the sun is not created until after the plant life has been created, and presumably isn't there for the earth to orbit at that time either, nor did the plant sprout under it. Others view it, well, them, as there appear to be two different accounts there in the first two chapters of Genesis, with slightly different details, as a metaphorical way of telling the story. In any case, no human was there to see it. So if you want to say it's literal, you need to say God showed a man, for example, Moses, a video of the whole thing, and that he understood all of it. And a lot of people are more than happy to say that this is basically what happened. If you were going to say the account is a metaphor then you're stuck deciding what it all represents. So it's tough either way. If you're going to say it's all literal, you end up having to believe some rather challenging things about the solar system, the age of the earth, and fossils. If it's a metaphor or symbolic, what's the deeper meaning? And at what point do we start believing anyone mentioned actually existed? With Abraham? Moses? David? Jesus? Best to just not think about all of that very much, most Plymouth Brethren people seemed to decide when I was a kid. And I kind of agreed. But I remember going to a young people's gathering an hour early, by accident. It was the weekend when daylight savings time kicked in. It was at Dr. Tom Kerr's house, and Tom started badgering me as to what I personally believed about this stuff. Now, in brethren circles, it's a bit of a faux pas to ask individuals what they personally believe. We all believed the same thing, didn't we? What the Bible clearly said. And we all knew what that was, and there was no room for doubt or discussion, was there? All the thinking was done. We all believed, well, you know, right? No real need to get into it then. So in terms of our culture, Tom was being rude. Because Tom actually wanted to know what I thought about dinosaurs, and I was showing him every indication that I didn't want to talk about it. He pressed me. How awkward. A creationist certainly has a few choices as to reconciling a literal genesis with what people find in the ground. He can decide that the dinosaur bones aren't dinosaur bones at all. He can decide that they are the bones of animals that existed as recently as 6,000 years ago and which were drowned in the Great Flood, having been too big to fit on the ark, unlike tigers, rhinoceroses, moose, and both African and Indian elephants. The theory that had sort of come down to me by osmosis was the more common one, that God had made the universe and the angels and stuff like that many millennia ago, long before man and the accounts of the Bible. That just as the Bible predicted a new heaven and a new earth at the end of this age, there had been an old heaven and an old earth before this one. That there had been a gap in time before the world was refitted for man. This theory is generally called for that reason the gap theory of creationism. The commercials for it have khaki and dancing and dinosaurs. God wouldn't make something shapeless, dark, and empty, the argument goes. So when Genesis describes the earth in those terms, we do not need to assume it had been made like that to begin with. Perhaps a cataclysmic event like an asteroid hitting the earth or Satan being cast out of heaven and being mistaken for one had wiped out all of the dinosaurs, disturbed its rotation, filled the air with dust and gases, created a greenhouse effect, and melted its ice caps and flooded it and stuff. Maybe Genesis is describing God tidying up after all of that. Scientists believe man came from a primordial ooze. Genesis said man came from the mud. Both views seem to indicate the universe came instantly into being, though with or without it making a big bang sound, the scripture does not relate. 
But there is a museum in America where you can take your almost certainly homeschooled kids and for a small fee have them photographed sitting on a triceratops statue which has a saddle on it. I believe it is intended to teach them that in the Old Testament, before the flood, there were dinosaurs you could ride. That amid all the symbolic beasts, creatures, animals, and monsters described by raving prophets who were probably really talking about the geopolitical ups and downs of their time, you can find mentions of leviathan and behemoths, which are really dinosaurs. Oh, and carbon dating isn't accurate within a few million years. In Chicago, by contrast, in the Field Museum, is the best, most complete set of T-Rex bones in the world. Obviously, when displaying a dinosaur skeleton, they have to make some fake bones to replace any missing ones. And so they do, without really indicating clearly how many bones are plastic. They don't, for example, generally make the plastic bones fluorescent pink. They make them indistinguishable from the real ones. The dinosaur in Chicago, called Sue, amusingly enough, has some fake bones in it. The main fake part is what paleontologists tend to refer to as the whole head. This is the sort of thing that creationists sometimes jump on. I went right through school, being taught that, of course, science had proved that man had descended from apes, that he was a more highly evolved form of ape, or to put it another way, that apes were a primitive form of man which evolved first and then evolved into human beings by increments. Only stupid people believed otherwise. But religion took the view that man was a distinct species who had certainly not evolved from apes, despite science generally taking the opposing view. Religion said that man had not descended from apes, but had been made separately. Science said that apes turned into people. But then I found out something very interesting. Without a single newspaper headline, news story, or anything of the kind, once I was an adult, I learned that science had quietly switched sides and was now saying that no, man had certainly, provably, never evolved from apes, but was a distinct species from apes who'd evolved in parallel. I felt let down. What about the Scopes monkey trial? What we call it now? Anyway, that night, back in the day, I was annoyed with Tom Kerr, not only because I hated being badgered about religious stuff I wasn't worrying over already, there being no shortage of other religious stuff I was already worrying about a lot, much of which has already or soon will show up in this book, but for another reason. Despite my refusing to agree with him or commit to any position at all, when Tom taught the young people who arrived an hour later, suddenly it was Mike and I agree, didn't we? And Mike and I think... After he'd a couple of times said, Mike and I agreed earlier, didn't we, Mike, that in my gracious way, I curtly shook my head and said, no, you talked, I listened, there was no agreement. I got like that around age 20. Didn't make me a lot of friends. It takes more than something like that to slow down Tom Kerr, though. I had seen him not slow down one time and skate at top speeds straight into the boards at hockey hard enough to really injure himself. So when it was clear to me that this wasn't going to stop him saying it a bunch more times, I shut up and neither nodded nor shook my head and just stared blankly at him while he tried that stuff. Which, of course, he did. He was always a very determined man. But I kind of liked him anyway. Some people who read the Bible say it's missing dinosaurs. Others read it and say that if we know how to look and are all smart and stuff, we can find dinosaurs in it. I have done my best to care about all of that. Turns out I can't. And back in the day, I was busy caring about other Bible stuff. Problems I had in reading the Bible Stuff that I was more concerned about than dinosaur bones or evolution involved the Bible itself as a book and how it was used by everyone around me. I had problems such as A. 
people seemed to be using the Bible to justify whatever the hell they wanted to believe, no matter what it actually said, including some stuff it definitely didn't say about hell. They'd start with the belief, then open the Bible and pillage through it, cherry-picking partial phrases for proof-texting purposes. B. No one had ever been willing to discuss the canon at our church, and I wanted to know more and thought it sounded like pretty important stuff. The canon involves what ended up in the Bible and what didn't. C. I wanted to think there were deep messages in the Bible, and that even if translators, theologians, and church people were messing it all up, that it was still there to find. So I was looking for those, without being willing to play wizard with the Bible and try to read it like tarot cards or tea leaves. D. I wanted to know how to read the Bible and let it talk without me just sneakily making it say whatever I wanted it to, or always seeing exactly what I had been told to expect it to say in there. Agendas are invisible much of the time, and next to impossible to get rid of. E. I was so trained in the Bible by that point that I quite simply could not read most bits of it properly, not without the words I was reading getting drowned out by my brain filling in what the next words would be before I read them. And then there were the years of DVD commentary-like Bible discussion telling me what the part I was reading was supposed to mean to the brethren people it had clearly been written to. Even today, when I read a modern translation, my brain busily corrects all the wording to make it 18th century King James again. I can't make that stop, nor can I stop the sermons from the past with dead men's voices droning on, explaining the brethren applications of the scriptures in question. Starting with A, by about 16, I was increasingly becoming aware of how arbitrary and self-serving and egocentric our interpretations and applications of the Bible often were in Plymouth Brethren circles. People tying themselves in intellectual knots trying to say the Bible means something very different from what it appears to say. And all that bugged me. I felt the Bible was useful for more than just making us brethren folk feel righter than other Christians. This would really intensify in my early 20s. I would notice that we were pretending that every word of the Bible was written by God to us today, and that any more ancient applications were not God's real intent, but just places to hide what he was really saying to us that day about not going and seeing Wayne's World, even though it was $2 Tuesday at the Soper Theater just around the corner from the meeting hall. Also, there were the actual attitudes Plymouth Brethren people showed in dealing with unconventional personalities and thoughts among their own people and when talking about or avoiding other Christians or regular folk. These attitudes increasingly seemed not only annoyingly arrogant, judgmental, and self-centered, but directly against the injunctions of the Bible itself. It's one thing to talk about the Bible, another thing to do it. We were talkers only, I felt. I was always talking about that. As to B and C, I became slowly aware, not through anything at Plymouth Brethren Church, that decisions had been made as to which writings and which versions of which writings should end up in the Bible we had. Someone decided that the epistles of Jude and Second Peter should go in, but that the books of Enoch should not. Of course, we were to be sure to read Jude, but Enoch was mischievous nonsense we were to avoid, as our own doctrine was imperiled by it. This despite the fact that Jude repeatedly quotes from the book of Enoch in our Bible, and then Second Peter seems heavily based upon having read Jude, including the Enoch bits and cribbing them somewhat. So no reading Enoch, except the bits that are quoted in our Bible, not the other bits that aren't. 
The Bible was being presented to us as what Dr. Frank might call inerrant. This meant that we were led to believe that from the time people started writing the books of the Bible, through edits and copies and various versions of them, to them being compiled and translated into English, no changes or mistakes had been made, and nothing had been added or lost. The Bible was magic. Every single King James comma, semicolon, and syllable had been God-breathed. Yet, like everything else, the hand of human beings, with their various conflicting agendas, seemed to be all over the process by which the Bible found its way to me. I was told to just not worry about it, that God had made sure it had arrived intact, and to just trust in that. This meant that if the various Gospels appeared to disagree as to details, we weren't simply to accept this as good evidence that we were looking at four eyewitness accounts made by four different, fallible people. Any police officer will tell you that if you question two witnesses, if their stories are perfectly identical, their stories have been rehearsed after being made up entirely. We were to view the differences between the Gospels as pretend mistakes, put in there like the dinosaur bones, to trick people and just really test our faith. Or if one assumed that they were not mistakes, one could stitch together any number of complicated explanations. Was the robe put on Jesus described as scarlet in one gospel and purple in another? Did the two quite distinct colors have very different symbolic meanings as to colors in Roman and Jewish culture and Bible imagery? Well then, there were two robes. Each gospel simply chooses, due to the leading of the Holy Spirit, to just not mention this fact, omitting one of the two robes, to keep the symbolism intact. If the number of lepers or fish or something are different in the different Gospels, they are. Same thing. It was symbolic, and events happening on different occasions were being discussed. I had to figure out what to do with all that stuff. Some Christians decide that, yes, the Bible is magically inerrant, and so every apparent editing or eyewitness discrepancy can't possibly be that, and needs us to concoct an explanation, which we will then trust in as deeply as we trust anything in the Bible itself, precisely so that we can feel we can still trust in the Bible itself. So both a scarlet and a purple robe were put on Jesus when he was being mocked at his trial. It's so clear in the scripture. Mostly, we Christians decide that despite some editing and translating and eyewitness irregularity, the message is getting through unimpeded, and we don't need to move heaven and earth to explain everything that doesn't make immediate sense to us. So that when we preach to some bum on the street and he asks us, How come there were twelve lepers in one gospel and only four in the other two, and they're not mentioned in the remaining one? And what about the number of fish? As bums on the street are apt to ask, we then have a simple, plausible explanation put together involving something blindingly obvious to careful readers. A simple explanation hinging simply upon Number 1. The writers of the Gospel, having been granted by the Holy Spirit the ability to be psychic about 2015 and thus know what that particular bum would think and therefore be testing his faith preemptively... Number two, three key cultural oddities of the particular Judean subsect of the Sadducees in question. Number three, an alternate translation of the word afrue in Koine Greek, which makes it sound somewhat like the Jewish word. <laughs> and number four, the self-explanatory fact that the miracle occurred at the Feast of Trumpets during a leap year, two days before a partial solar eclipse in the rain, as per the 70 weeks of Daniel. Mystery explained, Bible defended. So don't stop believing it after all. Hold on to that feeling, too. As to D and E, those certainly were and can still be a problem. As I've said, I can pick up a translation of the Bible that I've never read, 
start reading most passages in it, and in my head the King James translation of most of it is sounding in my skull, correcting the translations to KJV, along with what the next few phrases are going to say in the KJV before I even look at them. Also, a whole house of cards of brethren interpretation and application erects itself as if before my eyes when I'm trying to read the thing. Needless to say, this is a bit distracting. Ruth says, I met Jesus through the Bible. I mean, really met him. Got to know him as a person, not an object or a figurehead or a nebulous concept. I learned this not in my birth culture, but through years of being taught about him in another church, through the example, teaching, and love of some true followers of Jesus. I always think I was like the man with the palsy who couldn't get to Jesus on his own and had to have his friends carry him to Jesus, hoist him up and break up the roof and lower him on his bed down into the room where Jesus was teaching. It's been essential to my healing to read the Bible and other translations, most particularly the message, which is a salutary change from the King James Version we ingested with our mother's milk, and which, for me at least, is tainted and stained with brethren doctrine and interpretation. It helps to break the meeting tapes in my head to read the fresh modern translations paraphrases. It has been astounding to read the Bible for myself and to realize that what it says is many times not what I was taught it says. Anne is taking a break from decades of intense Bible focus. She writes, I haven't really read the Bible in a long time. Every once in a while a verse comes to mind. The last one was, To the pure, all things are pure. Is that a verse? I actually just donated all my Bibles to the church thrift store. I don't own one now. I am not averse to the idea of one day reading it again, a little, maybe in five or ten years. Sometimes passages in the Bible are way too familiar for me to be able to read in any way but the way I've been trained to read them. And other times I make strange, like a freaked out infant, seeing someone she should know, but apparently doesn't, while reading. Suddenly the old interpretations and applications roll back, and underneath is odd, brutal, upsetting stuff. Suddenly God actually kills people for not murdering pregnant women. Suddenly the comforting morals and, and so children we must always trust God. And so we see that God always has our best interests at heart. And so, if we obey God, it will all work out to our blessing, seem almost like the opposite of what the stories seem to be saying. Like fairy tales and any number of other ancient stories, the desired morals don't seem to fit many of the Bible stories, and increasingly, the thing simply is what it is. Often, God is quite clearly being presented as a person who is losing his dung with Israel, making no attempt to present himself as anything other than furious with hurt and grief and betrayal and bent on venting his anger upon them for their abandonment and whorish faithlessness. And then he gets over it and decides he really wants to be nice to them again. Not because they've repented necessarily or learned anything, but often just because he's done being mad and has retaken control of the temper he chose to loose upon them. I have had to read the Bible in bigger chunks and less often, chewing on what I've read for longer before reading random other bits of it. I've had to stop trying to justify God or the Bible, stop trying to fix anything that sounds mistaken, nonsensical, wrong, or cruel, or immoral, or like an abusive husband, and just let it be, knowing that I will not always get all of it. I've had to stop focusing just on the easy, comforting bits, 
and I've had to see that the majority of the Bible isn't useful to tell me to keep on being Plymouth Brethren like I was raised to be. I've had to let it be itself and not mess with it. It seems upsetting, challenging, and harsh at times. Often it is ancient and alien and very much not written to me. And some of it actually sounds kind of Jewish. It took a whole weekend, but one time I wondered, if I removed every bit of the Gospels that we like to quote, everything that was nice and comforting, how much would be left of them? I mean, my reasoning went, we were only quoting certain bits, so the Bible we carried in our heads was only part of it. What would the other part read like? How much of a Gospel would be left? That weekend, I merged the four Gospels into one morphed-together Gospel, which was actually pretty hard to do, and then simply snipped out most of the comforting, nice, encouraging, quotable bits we like to tell children and put on wall texts to see how much was left. I wanted to know the lost or missing Gospel, which ended up being about 75% of it. Having edited those nice bits out, I found that almost no Christian person would or could read what was left. Having removed the icing, no one could stomach the cake. Too depressing, some said. I don't like it, others told me. I couldn't read it. Couldn't handle that particular 75% of the Gospels, those Gospels that tell us about Jesus. But we'd all been raised on skipping the other bits and not really feeling like we were missing a thing. What were we missing? There really did seem to be an awful lot of the gospel story left that wasn't the part that we necessarily quote most often. And Jesus sounded like a pretty intense person going around starting things, a real revolutionary, a zealot, passionate, frustrated, nothing like how we were taught we were supposed to behave. This biblical Jesus was as far from Sunday school's gentle Jesus, meek and mild, as one could imagine. If the Sunday school Jesus wasn't truly from the Bible... Where was he from exactly? The same place as Ronald McDonald, Toucan Sam, and Tony the Tiger? The place that makes friendlier mascot characters that are more likely to attract customers? When it came to Harsh, the New Testament, with the possible exception of the book of Revelation, has barely a patch on the kind of stuff that makes up the majority of the Old Testament. The Old Testament is largely taken up by the writings of prophets, whose job seems primarily to go to Israel and tell them God says to tell them they're a great big whore, and that now they will have to experience the death of their babies and the enslavement and rape of their daughters. To make this point, their prophets must eat bread cooked with dung and do any number of other odd things. I sat in meeting halls for thousands of hours, hearing the Bible discussed before I reached adulthood. Most of the weird stuff got skipped in favor of us reading any portions that helped justify us as rightest. I took it all in, though. I even spoke up a couple of times, once I was an adult myself. Speaking up in meeting. I never stood up and broke the bread on a Sunday morning, but I remember saying a couple of things during discussions of the Bible. After I got my degree in English literature, though, I was starting to get bothered by exactly how the men were taking their red crayons and drawing those lines, differentiating between supposedly literal and perhaps symbolic passages of the Bible, and with how they use symbolism in general. Their seemingly arbitrary views as to what in the Bible symbolized precisely what seemed to change and morph as suited the men talking. Their fluid readings of it didn't hold together and make sense the way that I thought this imagery did in the actual Bible. 
because the Bible is pretty solid about stuff like that. But I was hearing guys say that in the Bible, water always symbolized death. Well, here it always symbolized the nations, the populations of the world, they might add, and, and here it always represented truth, but, but here it always represented refreshment. Well, here it always represented the word of God, yet here it represented life's troubles and trials. Here, though, it always represented God's blessing, but here it always represented God's judgment of sin, and here it, it always represented knowledge. In particular, when our meeting was solemnly studying the book of Revelation and the velociraptor scorpion-sounding monsters with the hair of women from chapter 9 were being described, it was explained to us how that men with long hair, these were monsters being discussed and not men, I thought, just like men with beards, were clearly intended by the Apostle John to represent rebellion. And we knew that this world was all about rebellion, rebellion against God and everything he'd put in place, including gender roles. Tisk tisk. I had short hair, but I was growing a short beard, and all of 21 years old spoke up and said that really, men with long hair and beards were only seen as rebels and upstarts in America in the 1960s, and that Revelation had been written thousands of years earlier, in a time when the hair of women, seemed in scripture, or in the case of David's son Absalom's thick hair cut only once a year, to represent beauty, glamour, or glory. I also mentioned that one would be hard-pressed to find a single male person in the Bible, including John himself, who wouldn't have had a beard. Exceptions were, of course, eunuchs, and those rejected delegates in the Old Testament who'd had their beards shaved to shame them, and were therefore given time to regrow their beards before having to appear in the king's court, lest they present themselves before the king barefaced. I did not add that I also did not feel that the monsters having the stings of scorpions represented a love of the song Winds of Change either. These were symbolic, apocalyptic creatures, not just hippies or heavy metal fans. Obviously, no one smiled or nodded or acknowledged that I'd spoken in any way. They just ignored me and continued with their pretend conversation, monologuing unabatedly about how rebellion was really, really bad, noting how much this wicked world was increasingly characterized by rebellion and individualism, particularly in the young. All this while ostensibly dealing with a part of the book of Revelation that didn't seem to be about any of that at all just as if they really hated hippies in 1991 and didn't seem to care what the Apostle John might have seen or what he'd been trying to say with his writing. So they were just ranting and talking about their own pet peeves. The world will end. What will cause it? Hippies and young people with their loud guitar music and long hair. Or so it appeared to me. In fact, the idea that we might listen to what the Bible actually said all on its own, rather than try to make it say we should keep on judging and hating what we already judged and hated, which was rebels, rule breakers, modernizers, and people who love to rock the party, fell on deaf minds. This approach to Bible discussion bugged me. Making the Bible say things like it was our puppet? This seemed almost as bad to me as using it to support points which were very clearly contradictory to its central themes. We really went through and co-opted bits of verses to spur us on in our diatribes. And the Bible, as wielded by meeting men, always told us to continue to do what we already did and to continue to think what we already thought, only more and harder. We didn't look at entire chapters or books or periods of time as whole things very often, certainly not when that would have got in our way. Not when the Bible was prone to wander off these topics we wanted to explore. Better to cut and paste relevant snippets. The system seemed to work by making certain no one and nothing connected. 
not the different churches, not the different age groups or genders, and not even the different verses in the different chapters of the various books by the different writers of the Bible. Chunks One important thing I have done to try to cure myself of this way of vivisecting, of slicing and dicing and making daisy chains of the Bible, is to sit down and read whole books of it at a time when possible, or in ten-chapter chunks. It's astounding how much stuff gets missed if you slice it up too much. The Bible calls and answers bits of itself from one place to the rest more than any book I've ever read. If I'm reading a letter from the Apostle Paul and I read it one chapter at a time with 24-hour breaks between chapters, it's no wonder I lose sight of the thing as a whole. I mean, how is that a natural way to read a letter? How you read a letter is you read the whole thing and then go back through it afterward. Think of Galatians as if it were an email. On one very uncharacteristic occasion after a youth camp in Pennsylvania back in the day, Sean Allen and I, both about 20, each gave a small talk to a room full of young people. It's the only time I can remember guys in their early adulthood being encouraged to teach. So Sean and I did. We were the only two. We were literal-minded like that, took people at their word and tried to make the Bible and church stuff work. Human groups are not kind to people like us. We don't get it. We take things seriously and we take them too far. In my talk, I contrasted the scriptural concept of being transformed inwardly by God into the image of Christ with merely imitating the outer appearance of what a Christian life was thought to look like superficially. Transformed, rather than merely conformed, the Bible wording went in Romans 12 verses 1 and 2. The talk didn't go over terribly well with some, but I remember some nice words from a few and sharing a brief congratulatory moment with Sean over having gathered the nerve and having talked for about 20 minutes each and having made sensible sentences and having not embarrassed ourselves. That was the last and only time I have ever been allowed to talk to a group of people about the Bible. Does Translation Wreck the Magic of the Bible? Nowadays, I find myself left with a bunch of choices as to how to read, interpret, and view this book that is imprinted upon my brain. Is the Bible, translated by King James's men in 1611 and revised in 1792, a definitive version I must read, a spirit-inspired translation? Or can I read other translations in an attempt to see it from new angles, with a fresh perspective to let it talk for itself, rather than telling it what I need it to say? How am I to draw those lines between things being literal, or symbolic, or sometimes both? Those lines between stuff for an idolatrous Israel and stuff for the early church? What to do with a book which comes down hard on eating meat which has blood in it, but says really not a thing against slavery, war, genocide, child molestation, wife battering, or polygamy. As a book of ethics, a, a rule book, as a history book, as a book filled with comforting bits to read when I'm feeling low, it's not very good at all. So maybe it's something else entirely. Maybe it's a way to know God, who is pretty complex and multifaceted, actually, always up to all sorts of stuff. Maybe it's a collection of eyewitness accounts of encounters with God, who is a person. And maybe we should call Jesus himself the Logos, the Word of God. Maybe the Word of God is not something that people lived without for thousands of years until it all got published as a single volume three centuries after Christ died. 
Every time books, which ended up in the New Testament, talk about the Word of God, they don't seem to be talking about the New Testament at all. Maybe Jesus was the Logos before the earth even existed. Maybe when God said, Let there be light, that was the Word of God being spoken, emanating from Him, and Jesus made it so. So then there was light, though the book of Genesis wasn't even around yet. Maybe the worth of the Bible is that it tells us about the Son, the Christ, the Logos, the Word of God, throughout human history, and even before. For people looking to accuse me of not believing that the Bible is the Word of God, this is the part you'll want to play for people. I'm saying the Bible, the inspired scriptures, referred to themselves as the scriptures and refer to Jesus himself as the Word of God, the Logos. I'm saying it says that and that I believe it. That sounds like heresy to my brethren-trained brain. But maybe I need to let the Bible itself speak and apply that particular term, the Word of God, the way it does to the Son of God himself Maybe it requires going into a bit more. The word for word is logos in the Greek. And we get words like logic, logo, theology, dialogue, anthropology, biology, analog, and logarithm from it. It means not only a word which can be spoken or written, but tied up indivisibly with it is a meaning that goes far beyond what our word, word, carries with it. Logos means meaning, thinking understanding, teaching, message, idea, and that kind of thing. Biology is the whole history of study and scholarship and new findings and thinking about life or bio. Anthropology is the same thing for man or anthro. In the Genesis story, however you read it, God has a thought, an idea, a logos, and he speaks it into being. In the first chapter of John's Gospel, harking back to Genesis, which says, In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, the Apostle writes, In the beginning was the Word, the Logos, idea, thought, or message. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men, and the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. There was a man sent from God, whose name was John. The same came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. Is the Lord Jesus Christ the Logos, the Word of God, and the light of the world? John seems to be speaking of him that way. It became clear to me in my twenties that a kind of King James Version worshipping idolatry seemed to be going on at my church. And it occurred to me that if the Word of God was a title the Bible applies to Jesus, the Son of God, and that the Bible consistently refers to itself in other ways, for example, the Scriptures, that maybe we'd do well to see the Bible as a collection of priceless writings we have, which writings allow us to know Jesus. Maybe we should call the book what it calls itself. 
I can just imagine when Jesus was walking around, living a message from God, and living the Old Testament and New Testament into flesh, what it would have been like if someone held up the Old Testament and said, I hold in my hands the very Son of God, or I hold aloft to your wondering gaze the third person of the Trinity. I can imagine someone saying, Never mind what that Jesus guy is doing and saying. We have all we need right here in the holy writings handed down to us from our fathers. What could he add to that? That would have been a big mistake because Jesus lived the message to us. It wasn't only written or even writable. It wasn't only spoken or possible to be spoken. Some of it needed to be lived out in a human person living a human life. Even with prophets like Ezekiel or Jeremiah, they had to not only say things, but live things, like marrying a whore and having instructively named children with her at God's request to make his point to Israel. And those kids had to live not only with those names, but with God having his prophet tell everyone their mother was a whore, what their names were, and all of it remaining in print to the present day, in the King James and more modern translations. If I was one of those kids... I might want my mother's profession and have my name derived from it to perhaps be forgotten after the first couple of centuries, but no. And today, I believe God speaks to us through the lives around us, through his creation, through the Bible tells us our very dreams sometimes, through reality, having his way with us, through closed doors here and an open way there, through death, through the words of preachers and fools, through the love of good people, through absolutely everything, and especially through the Bible. One time, the Bible says, God spoke through the ass of a man named Balaam. His pack animal, the, the animal the Bible says spoke, the word of God, came to Israel through that creature. But God did speak to Israel through dung also, when it was used to make Ezekiel's bread according to God's recipe, as part of another big point God was using Ezekiel to make. A point God didn't feel would be adequately communicated through mere words. God wanted Ezekiel to use human feces in making his loaf, but Ezekiel talked him down to expressing himself merely through animal dung. The Ezekiel bread you can buy in most grocery stores, though it claims to follow the biblical recipe, does not in most cases contain any feces. False advertising. Quite unscriptural. My own very first encounter with Ezekiel bread, though, was when a young man named Michael, not me, not Michael Vetter, had eaten a fair bit of it, suffered violent diarrhea, and had clogged a toilet which had overflowed everywhere. I had to clean up the pulpy, reeking mixture of Ezekiel bread and human excrement from where it was smeared all over the linoleum. Very natural, very organic, very scriptural. I find that image of the mess with olfactory memories fully engaged, hard to remove from my mind when thinking about Ezekiel and his bread. I can't read that story without that powerful smell being conjured. And God was speaking to Israel through Ezekiel and his dungy bread back in the day. He wanted Israel to know that their worship, the sacrifices they wanted him to see them making for him, stank, were not even remotely yummy. So the preparing of the bread had to stink to hammer that message, that word, that logos, home. I don't say all this to discount or mock the Bible or say that it's just another way we hear God wanting us to know and understand and feel and think and do things. Because in many ways, I think the Bible is magic, one of a kind, no substitutes. But God speaks to me through everything I have learned. I have to listen bigger to the Bible, even if it's not telling me to be more brethren. 
to the Bible when it's telling me to give a brethren idea another chance, perhaps applied a bit differently or with a better attitude, and to the whole world and what's going on in it, and to my whole culture and my whole family and my whole life up to this point. There are messages waiting to be heard from God everywhere. And I have to listen smaller, to tiny things, to everything else, even to the pratings of fools and things out of the mouths of babes. He speaks to us even when the person or thing used has no clue. Sometimes that person is drunk. And here's the hard thing, not to be superstitious about it, not to do what my atheist friend Bill said about Christians one time after a Christian girl he was sleeping with dumped him in a particularly juvenile and arbitrary manner. After completely failing to impress them with her depth, compassion, or Jesus-inspired anything much, Bill said, Christians do whatever they want, and then they say God told them to do it. I wish I could say I've never seen this happen. We have to let the God of the Bible in, rather than using him like a puppet. Reading the Bible with a veil on your heart. In the Old Testament, this one time that Moses spoke with God face to face, he came back with his face glowing all radioactive-like for a while. It scared people, so he started wearing a veil over it. I'm picturing this eerie, blinding glow coming from behind that veil. Very Doctor Who. Or maybe the Tundra episode of the Mighty Boosh. Look into the Parker. Moses had gotten a look at God himself. Either God was being a bit coy about this, or he was protecting Moses. He acted like it would blind Moses worse than staring directly at the sun for the whole conversation if Moses got to look at him casually the whole while. I don't know, really. But it wasn't casual. And then later, once Moses started following the instructions given him, he supervised the construction of the tabernacle, God's own tent in which to live among the camping Israelites, a temple they could disassemble and bring along with them to have God living among them as they traveled through the desert. And God was in there as a blinding glow. He could be seen as a pillar of fire above the tabernacle by night, looking more like a column of smoke by day. And there was a veil in there, a thick curtain, blocking people's view of him in the innermost part of the room, one supposes, for their own protection. Normal people could not go into the tabernacle and meet God close up, like Moses had done. In fact, they dropped down dead if they tried. So there were rooms within rooms, and the veil blocking the way. The high priest could go in once a year, and he needed to bring animal blood with him if he wanted to survive it. I'm sure it probably wouldn't have been anything like the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark, but that's an attempt to show how the glory of God might have melted people's faces back then before Jesus came. But then, God put on a body and came to earth as Jesus, to no longer only live disembodied in a religious building, but in a body like everyone else's. In a sense, his divinity was veiled in flesh. He did it all being born, eating, sleeping, singing, drinking, bathing, and all the rest, shoulder to shoulder with human beings. And eventually, he died shoulder to shoulder with two criminals, and was buried. And when his spirit left that body, some odd things happened. One of those was that the veil of the temple in Jerusalem was violently ripped in half, from top to bottom. There was then no veil between people and God They'd seen God walking around, being a person with a body like theirs, and now there was nothing to block their view of him. 
and Jesus told his disciples that once he was gone, God would once again live among human beings, but not in a mobile tent temple or even a weighty stone temple, not behind a veil, not even in a single human body with a human life. The Holy Spirit would live inside willing people. The disciples were told that their bodies were tabernacles or temples for the Holy Spirit. And all through Acts, Luke, probably, writes that new believers received the Holy Spirit. And then Paul and Timothy wrote to the Christians at Corinth and said that when the Holy Scriptures were being read to the Jewish people who did not recognize Jesus as the Messiah, that these people wore a veil on their hearts, not just their faces, their hearts, to unnecessarily block a direct heart experience of God, or to supposedly block his view of their hearts. Every time growing up that we would read in the Bible anything that was critical of the religious Jews of that time, Pharisees, Sadducees, lawyers, and scribes, we gleefully tut-tutted about that, just like we did over how stupid the disciples, particularly Peter, were. We criticized Paul for being stubborn and wanting to go to Jerusalem, perhaps, but got less laughs out of his adventures than Peter's. The Apostle Peter, what a maroon, as Bugs Bunny used to say. Sometimes we even applied those critical Pharisee verses to other Christian groups not fortunate enough to be as correct as we were. But we didn't apply them to us. We didn't make that connection between ourselves then and those other religious people from Bible times. Those people who assumed that they had the inside track as to God, but were getting much of it wrong, and needed to be told that they were not so much spiritual folks as more interested in being known as religious folks, fronting. But we did it. We read the Bible, with a veil acting as a buffer between us and God, making sure we didn't let it shine on our hearts too directly, didn't want certain corners of our heart to endure that light. So we had a veil over our deepest desires, fears, and shame. The veil was kind of a strainer, a filter, only letting the parts of the Bible that we felt told us to keep doing what we were already doing shine through it, and shutting the rest of it, the rest of God's word to us, the rest of God's heart, out. Obviously, this was dumb. The reason for a veil was never to keep God out. A heart veil, when reading, is not only obsolete since the death of Christ, but backwards anyway. It's dumb. It's pre-Christian. I think sometimes our veil is made of psychological issues, and sometimes it's made of doctrine. Then the Bible isn't us experiencing God, but rather us having support for the idea that the thinking in our Christian group is correct. We're putting the Bible to work for us, supporting the notion that the decisions and positions made and taken by our group are all right, or at least the best thing going. Clearly, this is not the same thing as letting the book speak so we can know and be known by God. So I began to realize that this was dumb. And those of us who wanted to do fun stuff felt like we needed protection from the Bible, lest we read it and find ourselves convinced to give up the last things in life that were enjoyable. Taught by our church culture, I think many of us were assuming that if we really listened to the Bible, that we'd have to stop doing more and more enjoyable stuff, like the Bible was some kind of joy extermination manual, might have to give up comfort and go to Africa. That's all incredibly stupid, clearly. But I feared all that sometimes. So, the answer? To let God shine into my heart, into the darkest recesses of myself, to see if he, as scripture promises, would give me the desires of my heart deeper and realer and darker and brighter than I myself knew them to be, or if he would ask me to stick my heart and head in a vice, 
or a hat box on a high shelf in the closet? Would reading the Bible more openly end up weighing me down with even more rules? This was an experiment that had to be done.